Hey, it's Mark. It seems like not a week goes by without another barrage of news stories, thought pieces, and or social media posts discussing the weight loss benefits of drugs like Ozempic, Wagovi, and Mujaro. These drugs, which in the case of Ozempic and Mujaro were initially approved for diabetes, have not only muscled their way into many of the conversations across the healthcare industry, they've also all been entrenched themselves into the cultural zeitgeist. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? No doubt the widespread off-label use for weight loss that has proliferated has further fueled that endless discourse around obesity in America, dieting, and the effects of the entire GLP-1 class. While the cultural phenomenon can be interesting in its own right, we also wanted to delve into some of the medical issues surrounding these drugs, including how they affect the body, the access issues, and what the next generation of treatments could mean for the industry. To that end, my colleague Jack O'Brien sat down with Dr. Jenny Yu, Chief Health Officer at Healthline Media, to get the skinny on the diabetes drug craze, how off-label use for weight loss has affected consumers in the industry in a broad sense, and what role medical marketers play in all of this. And let's just hear with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'm going to talk about a new bill introduced in Congress that seeks to target the potential danger of AI when it comes to biosecurity. Plus, President Biden takes aim at health insurers who are trying to avoid paying for mental health care. And Jack, once again, no shortage of issues on the healthcare social media front. What you got for us this week? This week, we're discussing medical marketing's reaction to Twitter rebranding as X, Bronnie James's cardiac arrest, and a potentially dangerous TikTok trend involving face cleanse. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. Please be joined today by Dr. Jenny Yu, the Chief Health Officer at Healthline Media. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're you're on to talk about something that's very timely in terms of where the healthcare industry and I think kind of mainstream society is at this point, which is kind of the Ozempic, Wagovi, Mongero weight loss craze that we've seen, which is nothing new. Americans have always kind of been obsessed with weight loss and battling obesity in the past few years, but this has taken on a new level. So I kind of wanted to set the conversation on that front in your own estimation, just where we stand with kind of this diabetes drug craze and, you know, the off-label use that we've seen for weight loss. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of um, go back a little bit on the history of it, right? So this class of drugs, um, GLP-1, have been around um, for treating diabetes for 15 years and treating obesity for about eight and really, I think coming out of the pandemic, um, maybe, you know, perhaps with our um, more kind of quiet, like quieter life, people were focused on um, weight loss and certainly caught the sort of cultural buzz last year, last summer. But this drug has been around for a long time and it's and it works really well. It works well in terms of affecting the different sort of parts of the metabolic system to cause weight loss. And so I think that's why it has caught this buzz. And you're right, you know, we, we want to be able to have something that helps us feel better. And whether it's from a mental behavioral aspect, or just from a less disease, um, prevention of disease aspect. And so that's why I think that's the craze. Um, but well, what I would say um, is that we can certainly see the demand, right? And it, 
says something about our society in terms of um, where people are um, and how people are really um, seeking something for obesity. Um, and so I think that's where we need to kind of have the conversation about, you know, how can we change the conversation about weight management and obesity in addition to this drug being available for the patients and consumers. And I think that's probably where our audience of medical marketers comes into play because they do have that responsibility and role of interfacing brands with consumers. And I want to get your take on that because obviously there is a role for, you know, patients with living with diabetes or those who are battling obesity to be able to use these drugs, you know, to help improve their lifestyle. But then on the other hand, we see the likes of, you know, Charles Barkley saying he's taken Mongero to lose 60 pounds or the Real Housewives saying that they've used it because they want to be skinny when they show up for the reunion show. What role does marketing have in terms of being able to say, hey, this is available to you as a consumer, but it really is for those who need it most, which are those who may have a medical condition that requires these drugs? Yeah, um, I think it's twofold there. So the first one is, um, yes, I think there's the responsibility in terms of education around how this drug can be used in the weight management. I think it's a tool in the um, toolbox of how we manage weight. So if someone's obese and um, and they've tried everything. And again, this is a metabolic um, condition. It's considered obesity itself is considered a relapsing medical condition. And so how can we set up the system so that it allows people to understand, yes, this drug is powerful. Um, it can help you to lose weight. Um, but at the same time, what are the other things that are important in sort of the other tools in managing lifestyle behavior, you know, talking about nutrition, talking about fitness, talking about sleep, um, so that it really, you know, one approach this whole sort of how we manage obesity in a holistic way, thinking about it as a whole person, um, because we know that there are many facets to um, how we think about um, eating and controlling appetite. And there's an emotional, behavioral and mental aspect of it. And so the drug is one aspect, but we need to think about it from a whole person approach. And that's where where the kind of marketing comes in, right? In terms of education and, and campaign around that. And then in terms of just people who want to lose weight, whether it's for, you know, aesthetics reasons or um, for their own kind of mental behavioral reasons, whatever the reasons are, I would say um, no judgment there, right? But again, we need to sort of think about it in terms of this drug being a tool and, you know, in a toolbox and not sort of talk about it as like the magic wand or the wonder drug. And it's easy for us um, as a society and culturally to think about that because we, we all want fast fixes and it's easier to have these fast fixes and sort of say, okay, I can live my lifestyle um, and then use this drug, you know, and, and it's just easy. It's, it's just culturally how, um, how we are. However, I think, again, taking the opportunity for whatever the reason is to prevent weight gain and think about lifestyle and our behaviors, we, we need to take an opportunity to talk about that in a bigger conversation about health outcomes, right? So what does it mean to prevent, you know, gaining weight as we age or, or whatever sort of stage of life you're in? And is that disease prevention? And then what does it mean when you already have chronic conditions like a cardiovascular issue or diabetes or, you know, musculoskeletal issues because of weight. And so I think we need to sort of reframe the conversations about a structure that allows people to think of this drug as a more comprehensive programming for how we deal with managing weight. I'm so glad you brought up that point because I really do think it kind of points to the nuance 
of this entire conversation, this whole dynamic that we're seeing at play, where again, to your to your point, it's not a silver bullet. It's not something that you just take it and then all of these other issues are gone by the wayside. You have to focus on your health and and what you're consuming, how you're exercising, all these other external factors in conjunction with potentially taking this drug or this treatment. And I wanted to kind of pivot the conversation because you were talking about the effects that can have on your body. And we've seen a lot of reporting about the side effects, people talking about dehydration, people talking about having diarrhea, ozempic butt, ozempic face. There's been even this report this week that the European Medicines Agency is looking into, you know, reports of suicidal ideation that are related to it. What do you make of all of these side effects? Because obviously with any sort of treatment that comes out, we all mock it that it comes out in pharma ads where it's like people dancing around. Here's the litany of side effects. But these are real things that come with the drug. Yeah, these are real things that come with this drug. And I think if one understood how the drug worked, um, it may sense some of the side effects that you mentioned. So first acts like a, a gut hormone, like the glucagon. Um, so when that's around, it allows the pancreas to create more insulin that reduces the glucose or blood um, sugar level. Um, and also sort of helps to slow your um, uh, your gastric emptying. What that means is it slows sort of how food is processed in your stomach. So it always gives you that kind of fullness a little bit, and it has a feedback mechanism for suppressing appetite. And that fullness that you feel in your stomach at times can make people really nauseous. And that's what where the nausea and the vomiting comes in. Uh, and because of that changing of the kind of um, gut motility is what then causes some folks to have um, the diarrhea. And then of course the um, some of the dehydration that comes with it. And for folks who are coming on the drug first, I think there should be conversations around how do you reduce these side effects, right? So you can't take this drug and expect to sort of still eat these huge, large amounts of meals or greasy, um, you know, fatty foods that are more difficult to digest. Um, so the conversation should be around, okay, these are the ways in which one could adopt into being on this drug, which is smaller meals and staying hydrated. And that's the conversation, uh, you know, a clinician or a provider who's prescribing the structure, be able to guide the, the patient when they first start. And then the ozempic bun, the ozempic face, all those things are just, you know, we have specific fat pads that are more receptive to loss, right? And with this drug, when you have fast loss and when you have sort of reducing of the um, metabolic uh, rates and such, and when you, your, your skin just can't catch up. Um, it depends on what age you're in. And so this is why some of the things are coming up. And then I just see the reports out of Iceland in terms of, you know, the suicidal ideations. I think, again, with this drug being so popular and everybody wanting it, um, there needs to be better sort of clinical protocols in terms of who's eligible, again, right? Who's eligible um, and who qualifies. And so that includes sort of um, understanding the whole person again, right, in terms of how this can play into a role for them. So whether it's there, um, I'm sure there's going to be investigation from the EMA into this, but to, you know, incidences and to isolated cases, um, like I said, this has been around for a while. So whether it's, you know, particular patient cases that this um, was not the right drug for, um, don't know the answer. But I, but I, I do say that that having a better protocol for understanding what type of patients qualify this is important and having the conversation about how this is just one tool in the, in the toolbox of managing weight is also important. And so that's what I would say about sort of those side effects and, and having the right conversation, again, education for patients and people who are also prescribing it and sort of the adjacent kind of care teams, right? Like whether it's a nutritionist, behavioral person who's part of that bigger care team um, in managing patients with weight issues. 
And I kind of wanted to continue the conversation on that line where you talk about maybe the implications of the long-term effects. We're only, you know, like you said, about a year or so into this latest craze as it relates to widespread off-label use for weight loss, but it's not stopping here. You know, Eli Lilly just last month released really promising data for retitutride, which is supposed to be, you know, even more powerful than these other drugs. I know Pfizer's in the space as well. It kind of goes back to your point about there needs to be an education push. There needs to be something where it says, hey, you as consumers can use this, but beware that this is how it can affect your body and you're going to have to change some other aspects of your behavior. Just kind of curious when you look at the long term, what that's going to mean. Maybe for adults, I know there's been studies too of how it's affected children with obesity and being able to change their lifestyle and their bodies going forward. You know, what what does the long term look like in your perspective? Yeah, and I think from a public health standpoint, we um, whether you're one is in pharma or you're on the clinical side as a provider or you're on the consumer side or branding side, I think it's our sort of responsibility to make sure that our education and messaging is consistent and is consistent in a way that allows people to understand the implication of this drug long term. And we don't know sort of the long term effects of it right yet. We know that it, there is an increased risk of causing thyroid cancer and that potentially people will have to stay on it forever. Though there are cases where people are who are obesity medicine providers who are able to kind of titrate and use the medication sort of in their way that makes sense for their demographics of patients that they're taking care of. So I think so I think the messaging needs to be consistent that, yep, this drug is powerful. It can um, do wonders. And of course, you know, there are studies now being done that outside of just metabolic and obesity treatment options, that this as it acts on glucagon receptors can have neuroprotective effects, right, from a dementia standpoint. And then it can affect sort of fat metabolism um, just from the liver and how it's transported in terms of lipid and high cholesterol. So those are still studies to be done and, and we still don't quite understand all of the sort of potential positive effects in the same time. We don't know what the long-term negative effects are either. Um, so we just need to have sort of a very kind of uh, cautiously guarded approach, right? Where it allows the folks who really know the patient population to be able to um, utilize this and sort of study it in the real world um, in terms of how this can help people along their journey. Again, I see this as a medication that helps obesity as a chronic condition, and then how then it can affect the other chronic conditions that's associated with having obesity. So I think we need to have consistent messaging in terms of just educating around the um, positive and negative effects, um, talking about it in a whole person way in terms of this is not just a quick fix, right? That needs to be lifestyle changes and behavioral changes in addition to using this medication. And, and I think that would really help then sort of kind of bring back the messaging and conversation back from the, the cultural and kind of craze that, that this med medicine has um, kind of taken on um, since last summer. Dr. Yu, I've really appreciated having you on the show and being able to have this kind of nuanced conversation around the issue, given that it, you know, it's obviously grabbed so many even mainstream headlines. It goes beyond us just in the B2B space. I am curious if there's anything else as it relates to this topic that you think our audience of medical marketers should be privy to or should keep in mind, obviously, as new developments come down the line in the next few months. Yeah, and I do think that we haven't really touched on sort of the cost piece, right? And, and just in terms of it is costly. Um, and um, again, it's one of those things where not all insurers want to cover it um, in terms of what this means long term. And is it a um, lifelong drug that someone has beyond? And what does this mean in terms of someone's actual health 
outcomes and then what's the expenditure around sort of getting to that health outcome. And so I think those are still things that we have to figure out. And um, and I just hope that however we think about this and whatever the conversations that are being had, that we do think of obesity and weight management sort of as a upstream sort of solution to some of the more landscape of we focus on health, sick care, right, rather than health care. And so I think there's still lots of more conversations to ha- to be had, but that's what I would encourage people to think about as more medications come out, um, whether it's the oral form versus other injectables, but just in terms of how we think about that. Absolutely. You talk about that in terms of it's not being a silver bullet for its own care, but then you talk about the cost, access, you know, inequities that go down the line. There's so many other aspects of this conversation. And I'm sure that, you know, in our reporting, we'll be covering those over the next few months, as I'm sure a a lot of people in the mainstream press will as well. So, Dr. Yu, again, really a pleasure to have you on the show here to be able to talk about this. Hopefully, we can get you back on when, you know, Reddit 2 tried or whatever, whatever else comes to the market, we can revisit these conversations. Yes. Thank you for having me. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. As AI continues to capture the imagination of many in the healthcare industry, policymakers are beginning to turn their attention to the potential pitfalls of the technology, this time when it comes to biosecurity. Last week, a group of bipartisan legislators introduced a new bill in Congress, the Artificial Intelligence and Biosecurity Risk Assessment Act. The bill would require HHS to better study and monitor AI advancements and learn how AI can be used maliciously to develop new viruses, pathogens, or chemical weapons. In a statement, Representative Anna Eshoo said, quote, We must remain vigilant against how AI can threaten our national security and public health, and that AI can, quote, design new lethal biological agents or resurrect history's worst pathogens that could devastate our country. Talk around AI has mostly centered around how the technology can help improve healthcare by helping to generate new treatments and diagnostics. But this likely won't be the last time legislators try to target AI as a potential public health threat. Next up on the policy front, President Biden is hoping to crack down on health insurers who are avoiding paying for mental health care. On Tuesday, the HHS proposed a new rule that would force health insurers to adhere to the 2008 Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which requires insurers to provide the same level of coverage for mental health issues as they do for physical conditions. The White House noted that insurers are frequently dodging that law and limiting patients' access to mental health care. The new rule would force them to pay fines if they don't provide that equal coverage for mental health. This is especially relevant given that more than one in five adults in the U.S. have mental illness, according to the NIH. I'm Lesha Bouchak, a senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. We've had a few options over the past couple of weeks in terms of what to talk about. One that missed the cut this week was the 25-year-old nursing student, Carly Russell, who apologized for a hoax kidnapping that sent off a nationwide hunt. But we're going to start today with the story that's top of mind when it comes to social media and healthcare, which is Twitter rebranding to X. The social media site's experienced a fair amount of tumult since Elon Musk bought the company at the end of 2022, and there's more to come as Twitter will rebrand to X. 
Musk announced on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, on Sunday that the new logo would be going live to replace the iconic bluebird that has been the face of the company since 2010. With it comes Musk's vision to transform the Twitter we know into something new, what he's hoping will be the app for, quote, everything. To that end, Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino noted in a tweet that X will, quote, go further transforming the global town square. She added that the app seeks to be, quote, the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in video, audio, messaging, payments, banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services and opportunities. When it comes to initial thoughts on the rebranding effort, though, several healthcare marketers express some level of doubt. Quote, I would say I have a healthy amount of skepticism, said Chuck Heeman, president of Integrated Activation at Real Chemistry. Similarly, Pete Levin, SVP of Paid Search and Paid Social at Publicis Health Media, echoed Heeman's concern that a rebrand won't address brand safety issues. If anything, it might be detrimental to the platform as a whole and further shake user and brand trust. Quote, my first response as a creative director is that X works very well if Musk's aim is to kill the platform, said Jody Van Swearinger, SVP and group creative director Abelson Taylor. And I want to bring Lesh into the conversation since she reported out this story. And it seems that there's kind of a uniform response from the medical marketing community, which is they don't like whatever X is going to be. Yeah, the main takeaway from, you know, all the people that I reached out to to comment or spoke with yesterday from the healthcare marketing world, all were pretty much on the same page. So they weren't impressed. Um, They weren't convinced that this rebrand would really change anything or do anything to kind of lure advertisers back to the platform. We know that um, there's been a lot of brand safety concerns um, ever since Elon Musk took over the platform last year. And I believe uh, Twitter's ad revenue has dropped by more than 50% in that time frame. And, you know, everyone I spoke with was uh, concerned that uh, just this sort of rebrand with the new logo and the new name isn't really going to do much to kind of address those deeper concerns. It's kind of that moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic sort of feeling. Yeah, definitely. Right. And great reporting, Lesha, um, today on that uh, name change. And uh, yeah, like you said, the, the name cha- change alone uh, doesn't seem like it's going to affect advertising on, on the platform or brand, you know, where brand safety um, has been an issue. Um, and, um, you know, if anything, you'd think they'd want to kind of fall back on the, on the, on the well-known brand equity of the name. And also, as you, as you point out, um, you know, their bad business, um, is, is facing a really slow recovery after losing, um, a lot, uh, in, in the, in the previously reported exodus, you know, a lot of their, their advertisers, uh, have yet to come back, uh, after that debacle, uh, you know, with the Twitter blue. And so, um, you know, they're, they're facing a, a very slow recovery there. And it sounds like from your reporting that the, um, companies that are going to be, you know, advising pharma clients, uh, are still skeptical. So that could, could really impact that recovery given, given that you know, how much pharma companies have historically spent, uh, on that platform. Yeah. And I'll just bring up a, another comment from someone I, I spoke with, um, Jennifer Vance, associate director of social media finger paint group basically said, there's so many other things that a platform would need to address, um, beyond a, 
rebrand, data privacy, engagement enhancements, content moderation, and ad targeting capabilities, uh, she said, are just a few areas that influence a marketer's decision to activate on a social platform. And platform success lies in demonstrating a commitment to fixing what hasn't been working and making improvements from there. Um, So I thought that that provided some insight. And, you know, a few other people said that a rebrand might even hurt, uh, I guess, Twitter or X now, um, because Twitter is such a, you know, trusted name. It's like a longstanding brand that's well known and changing it could hurt it, you know, could could further shake public and advertisers trust in the platform. I thought it was interesting, Lesha, in the piece, you you include the fact that somebody asked, what are we going to call, you know, messages or content. Yeah. What we had classically called tweets and Elon had said, we're going to call them X's. And I've seen a lot of other reporting and commentary pieces talking about, you know, companies strive so hard to get, you know, the brand value that Twitter has. You know, we were talking the past couple of weeks, what do you call threads? Like, what do you call the activity on there? And Twitter already comes with likes and retweets. Mm -hmm. And now that's seemingly going out the window. I I saw one um, analyst report saying that they're losing anywhere between four and $20 billion in brand value. And it's like, you can't just get that back. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to bring kind of a macroeconomic slant to the discussion, other digital platforms, Alphabets, Google, uh, the world's largest digital ad platform, they said their earnings uh, have been down. Snap um, has has talked about tough economic conditions, uh, so everybody I think across the board, you know, is is facing tough sledding, and so um, a lot of the problems that Twitter has faced are not solely due to uh, Musk's, um, you know, sometimes erratic, you know, running of this platform, but uh, it just kind of underscores uh, all of our eyebrow raising, you know, around some of these moves uh, of late. You know, you it's at a time. Uh, you know, when, when people want to go to brands that they trust and, uh, these, these moves, uh, are further raising questions about, about that trust. So, yeah, as if their own moves weren't, you know, playing to their detriment, there's all these other sort of macroeconomic headwinds that they have to contend with too. So, you know, what, what do you do, even if you're trying to do it perfectly and you're not succeeding, and then you have somebody who may or may not be shooting themselves in the foot with each of these kind of erratic to use your word, Mark decisions. Absolutely. Great. So great reporting on that one uh, from from Lesha. The next uh, item you have for us, uh, Jack, when when you first mentioned it earlier today, it was, you know, I think we were all taken taken aback. Uh, What do you got for us next? Yeah, this was not originally going to be in our script, but it came up when we were having our weekly editorial meeting that Bronny James, the eldest son of uh, Lakers star LeBron James, suffered a cardiac arrest during practice on Monday and is in stable condition. This is from a James family spokesperson, quote, yesterday while practicing, Bronny James suffered a cardiac arrest. Medical staff was able to treat Bronny and take him to the hospital. He is now in stable condition and no longer in the ICU. We ask for respect and privacy for the James family, and we will update media when there is more information. LeBron and Savannah wish to publicly send their deepest thanks and appreciation to the USC medical and athletic staff for their incredible work and dedication to the safety of their athletes. James, who is 18, is entering his freshman year at USC and is ranked 20th in the 2023 ESPN 100 rankings. Now, obviously, it's a very sad situation, but that did not stop Elon Musk from speculating that it was related to the COVID-19 vaccine. The world's richest man tweeted shortly after the news broke, quote, we cannot ascribe everything to the vaccine, but by the same token, we cannot ascribe nothing. 
myocarditis is a known side effect. The only question is whether it is rare or common. Take that for what you will. This cardiac arrest comes more than six months after Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest during a Monday night football game. Training staff from both teams, along with first responders, began administering CPR and used AEDs to restore his heartbeat, which took around 10 minutes to achieve. It's important to note that there are more than 356,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests that occur annually in the U.S., and the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Foundation said that nearly 90% of these cases are fatal. To that end, the American Heart Association has promoted its A Nation of Lifesavers campaign this year to double the survival rate from sudden cardiac arrest by 2030 through a combination of in-person training and other resources. And I can tell you from having attended one of their training events uh, near our offices in downtown Manhattan that they are taking this very seriously, as I think all of us should, speaking as somebody that comes from a family with a pretty renowned cardiac history. It's obviously very upsetting to see this happen to anybody, let alone somebody like Damar Hamlin, who is a couple of years younger than me, or somebody like Bronny James, who is only 18 years old and hasn't even you know, started his college career to see something happen like this to somebody so prominent uh, is just disturbing. I don't think there's any other word to put it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely sad. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's like common to see cardiac uh, arrests from very young people, but apparently it's not too unheard of. It's not an unheard of phenomenon among athletes. I mean, obviously we did see this with Damar Hamlin and there has been documentation of this happening to young athletes under the age of 35 um, when they're exercising. And a lot of times it's linked to a genetic condition that was not um, identified before. Um, or sometimes it happens to a structurally normal heart when there's a blow to the chest. Um, and there's a lot of other factors behind it as to why it happens to to young athletes. Um, but it is it is definitely you know, it's it's sad to see this happen to someone so young. And and to that point, Lesh, I just want to pull out a study that I saw on Defector, uh, one of my favorite websites. They'd said that a decade-long study of NCAA athletes found that sudden cardiac death was much more common in men's basketball players than in other sports. So I just mm, want to give that some context to what you bring up there because mm-hmm. I think that's important. Mark, what is your take on this whole situation? I just... Um you know, so, so surprising, such a, a promising young athlete, um, and, you know, to, to be facing this. Um, and, you know, I hope you, I was hoping you weren't going to bring up the Elon Musk point, <laughs> but I, I guess you had to, you know, because, uh, it's def- definitely grabbing headlines, you know, that he's trying to link this with, uh, the COVID vaccine, uh, known side effect, uh, being myocarditis in young male, males, but, um, you know, just in and of its own right, you know, it's just, um, I was, again, I was just taken aback by it and, you know, it, it just hit, hit home the fact that somebody's so young to be facing this in the prime of their life. Uh, so, uh, we just, we, we wish them the best. And so did DeMar Hamlin too. DeMar Hamlin had put out a tweet shortly after the news broke, basically saying that he's there supporting Bronny and had, highlight the fact that LeBron James had sent his well wishes when everything was going on with DeMar back in January. So obviously good to see that sort of camaraderie between athletes and what is, you know, a very unfortunate situation all around. Absolutely. And I think of my own, you know, sons, you know, who are around that age, one of them and, you know, the one close behind. Uh, And, you know, when you have kids that are into sports, uh, these things can rattle you. Um, And so, uh, um, it's, it's just, uh, a reminder that, uh, 
we're all human. And um, as Alessia pointed out, there's a lot of factors that could be at play here. Um, so that's important to keep in mind as well. Um, let's not rush to blame it on anything, but wait for the facts to, to play themselves out. Absolutely. So in our last segment, recently a seemingly harmless TikTok trend has emerged. People have used coconut oil and micellar water to cleanse makeup off their face or help remove fake eyelashes. However, one TikToker's rush to the doctor to remove a sty that had built up as a result of the oil has marked the trend as potentially risky. In a recent video, a user explains her story in Spanish. She warns others who use coconut oil and micellar water combo on their face that it can potentially have harmful effects on your eyes and skin. The video includes pictures of the sty that she developed on her eye. Quote, I removed my makeup every day with coconut oil and then micellar water. In the end, I end up seeing two different ophthalmologists and they both told me that it was the oil's fault. My message to people who follow my advice on TikTok is that you have to get good information from professionals. A sty is a red and swollen lump on the eyelid caused by a bacterial infection in one of the oil glands near the eyelashes that typically fills with pus. While most styes can resolve on their own, more severe cases may require going to the doctor to get antibiotics or undergo a short surgery to remove it. According to the Mayo Clinic, risk factors for styes include rubbing your eyes with dirty hands, leaving on eye makeup overnight, or using expired cosmetics. The trend in question has been around since 2021, but continues to make the rounds on the platform. Some users were even touting the combination of coconut oil and micellar water as a lash serum to remove fake eyelashes and clean off mascara. One video shows a TikToker mixing coconut oil and micellar water into an empty mascara bottle, then placing the serum onto her eyelashes. While micellar water on its own is generally regarded as safe and an effective way to cleanse your face, coconut oil is a little bit sketchier. According to the Cleveland Clinic, coconut oil may work great to help soothe dry skin on your body or even treat mild wounds. However, putting it directly on your face is another story entirely. Doctors generally don't recommend putting coconut oil on your face because it may clog your pores and may even exacerbate acne. Coconut oil may also lead to milia or clogged pores that lead to yellow bumps on your skin. And before we get into the broader discussion about this trend, I also want to note that there is another trend that has popped up um, as we were putting this podcast together of drinking borax and medical authorities working feverishly to debunk that claim. So, Lesha, again, you wrote this story. I want to throw it over to you because you live in the land of just having to go down these TikTok rabbit holes and you are such a trooper for it. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's no shortage of, you know, trends, skincare trends in particular are really popular on TikTok. Um, and I, I've seen coconut oil being used before for, um, you know, dry skin and things like that. But um, seeing people use it on their face, um, thinking it's going to be good for their face and then obviously finding out that it's actually clogging your pores or leading to eye problems. Um, you know, that's, that's not very good to see. So, um, but as you mentioned, this new borax trend, I, I kind of reviewed a few TikTok videos briefly uh, about an hour ago on that. And that definitely makes the coconut oil and micellar water trend look extremely harmless in comparison. <laughs> um, so, you know, people are apparently putting borax, which is a household cleaner, into smoothies every day. Uh, they're bathing in it, claiming that it helps uh, relieve chronic pain issues, inflammation, and other health problems. Um, we'll probably be covering that more in depth this week, so stay tuned for more. But in the meantime, do not ingest borax. Yeah, I, I get the idea that it could soothe your pain. It's going to soothe everything else that comes with human existence <laughs> if you consume borax at that level. Um, Mark, 
I don't know if you want to take the missler water, coconut oil, or <laughs> the pick, borax, man. or yeah, take your choose your poison here. Um, you know, home remedies have been uh, proliferating, you know, for 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 centuries before we had uh, borax. Uh, even um, I can I can confirm that uh, in some of the ancient ancient texts uh, that I've uh, <laughs> I've studied. Uh, I can you know talk talk to anybody offline about that. But uh, outside of that, the Cleveland Clinic recommends uh, micellar water. You know, as as an exfoliant. I think so. You know, people aren't necessarily. Um, you know, uh, out of out of out of line for you know considering using that as a, as a makeup removal agent, I suppose, um, uh, in in the right way. Um, so so just to jump in there, um, of, of of the three, um, but it it uh, you know as as the Cleveland Clinic points out on their site, um, it can be a good solution to add to your skin routine for those with oily skin. Um, and it's kind of got some kind of detergent, uh, quality, uh, and, uh, but it might not be as hydrating as, as you think. So, um, you know, again, another example of, uh, these TikTok trends taking off and the power of influencers, uh, but people need to, much as you said, sort of look into these things for themselves, uh, and not just follow along blindly with, uh, what, what their favorite influencers are, are doing. I think that's sort of should be the advice across the board, you know, look into these things first, uh, before just kind of, uh, signing on. Yeah. I thought that the tide, the drinking tide pod trend would have taught everyone that, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> seeing the borax thing pop up in the recent weeks, I guess people haven't you know, learned that uh, they need to do research on these things before trying them. This is truly the two sweet spots that you cover too, where it's like, to Mark's point, like it may be a trend that's like, oh yeah, it's, it can do some sort of harm, but there is some sort of logic behind missler mm -hmm. water or coconut oil. Like it's just a little off. And then there's something that's borax, like drinking or bathing in it. And you're like, okay, so that's just deranged. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's kind of the two that go into it. It's either like, oh yeah, that's not so bad, but like it could be better. And the other one, it's like, why would you ever do this right. to your body? Absolutely. And, and you know, if you do a simple search on boric on borax. You'll see the main ingredient. Boric acid is commonly found in laundry detergent, uh, sold as a cleaning product, and also uh, used for pest control. Just use it. Uh, leave it at that. <laughs> so uh, I don't think you want to be in ingesting anything that that's used uh, for pest control because uh, those things usually have a uh, have a mortality component attached to them. <laughs> leave those for the best, please. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.